You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined with my two, three, two good friends. I can't even count right now. Dr. <laughs> Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist <laughs> at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who is back from the University of Colorado Hospital. How's it going, guys? Good to have you back. Good. Good to yeah. see you, Matt. How you doing? It's great to be here. Uh, it is awesome to have all of you guys back. It's fun. I feel like we're in our little little... little I feel like we're like in a little nest. I feel safe when we're all here together. I feel like this is my little yeah, home. Yeah, I like the border. The, the, it's a soothing blue border. On Doesn't this, it? Uh, the, yeah. This new app we've got. <laughs> so, so for those of you who are not able to tune in to <laughs> to uh, to uh, pandemic on our live streaming, that's what we're talking about. You can't see it. You're just listening to us. We have a new cool border. We had this sweet intro. That was pretty fun. It was revving Steven up. I think he was ready to like dance and that kind of stuff. But all the reason why you can try to subscribe, help that help us. We're trying to raise two hundred twenty five more dollars. You can do that at Venmo, PayPal, all in the show notes. Or if you do as little as five dollars a month, you can do that uh, through patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. So I think that's all the good news. Please give us a review. You can do that. We've had a lot of great reviews. It helps us feel supported. We get emails. I just forwarded some to Stephen Mark. Sorry about the delay. From Tina again from Cyprus. From Bruce from Australia. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We love the feedback. It's so great to hear how people are doing. And just to hear that you're still alive. That's just really nice. It's just to get those emails, get those touch points. That We love it. So Fergal, we haven't heard from you in a while, Mr. Ireland. So we'll hopefully hear back from him. But I think that's it. How are you guys doing? So, Steve, Mark, yeah, it's been a couple of weeks. How's hospital life? What's going on? How's how's the whole how's the whole transition of hospital, going to school, family? How's that going for you? Yeah, <clears throat> well, we're doing everything. So, kids are back. They're doing five day a week school now. We I don't know if we talked about it in a previous episode, but they had a quarantine procedure that we had to do for one of our kids because somebody that was in casual contact with her tested positive. So her whole class went home for two weeks, <sighs> but that turned out okay. And nobody else got it. And then, you know, we've been doing fine. We had our, one of them, one of the kids got uh, COVID tested about a week and a half ago because she had her first runny nose since February. <laughs> oh <laughs> man. That's <laughs> and so, well done. You know, so little stuff, um, but they're doing great. And it's, it's good for, it's nice for them to see other people and to, you know, to be back in the, in the swing of things. So I really like that for them. Hospital life is, you know, status quo. We're kind of just trucking along. Uh, I haven't been on a COVID service for a few weeks now. It's been, uh, it's been a bit because unfortunately right now in Denver, our, our census, so the number of hospitalized patients with COVID is still relatively low. It's been staying relatively steady even since I would say beginning of August or so. And so even though we've had some ups and downs on our case counts, especially most, you know, recently we've seen an increase in the statewide cases so far, at least in the hospital side, things are, are going steady. Great. Steven, how about you? How's life as a scientist right now? Oh man, it's, I mean, it, it, whoever thought that working from home could be so exhausting. I'm wiped out, but sure. yeah, I mean, I just, just kind of carrying on right now. We're, we're just pushing another project forward at the moment, looking at the, basically just how the amount of virus in your body changes over time and how, mm -hmm. how much variation there is between people. And I think we'll probably actually talk about that a little bit on the podcast too. Okay. But yeah, just doing that and then trying to get outside and see the leaves when I can. It's it's beautiful up here in the Northeast in the fall. So that was something I hadn't appreciated before I moved. So just trying to do my best to stay sane. Now we just realize, well, let's do another campaign to raise 
thousands of dollars for cameras to just sit outside your window so we can watch the leaves in Boston yeah. while we're actually... I think it's a worthy, worthy expenditure, don't you all think? <laughs> so... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Add that to the Patreon list. Yeah, totally. Well, yes. Well, let's we're get not doing that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're not. Yeah, that was just a joke. So please, we're not that that crazy. Well, let's get started. We got a lot to talk. Well, we don't have that much to talk about, but we have some good stuff to talk about. A couple of few things. It'll be a little bit shorter of an episode, as you guys could probably imagine. Those of you who are, who are listening, that we're definitely kind of in in the throes of COVID and news is a little bit sparingly here and there, but it's where there's some good stuff still going on. I want to start with you, Mark. At first, we talked about off the recording about this Regeneron. I don't know if, saying, if I'm saying the word correctly, but mm-hmm. I, at first I didn't know if it was new. You were telling me that necessarily this isn't necessarily a new thing. If you want to talk about Regeneron a little bit, especially you were talking about this is something that maybe President Trump is, is taking as an experimental drug. And then mm-hmm. just lump that in with everything else that we're talking about, how I've been hearing from the media that, you know, he's on remdesivir, which I think that's normal. And then some people say he's now on the steroid, which oftentimes doesn't happen till later. So now he's put on earlier. Does that mean anything? Have you experience with this? So talk about all that context. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the big, the big news and the big new thing this week is that this for, you know, this is the week that President Trump was diagnosed with COVID. So I don't think we've, you know, uh, the last episode was prior to all of that shifting. And so in, in the time since we've talked, he has been hospitalized at Walter Reed uh, Medical Center. And there's been some reports, it sounds like in the the reporting um, has been, it's been a little bit hard to to exactly judge and without knowing, you know, exactly what's going on, but it sounds like he's doing pretty well and may have been on some supplemental oxygen at some point, but we're not totally sure. And it sounds like, you know, there's been a little bit of, of mixed messaging from the doctors there and then some of the White House folks about what's going on exactly. But it, all accounts seem to show that right now he's in a, a relatively mild phase of the, the illness. So we, we were talking about the different types of treatment and situating it in the context of what he's getting. So you had asked about this Regeneron trial. So there's there's a big trial going on that is randomizing patients to several different studies, or sorry, several different treatments versus the standard of care. And one of the things that patients are being randomized to is these, this cocktail of antibodies. And so what the antibodies do, so there's different ways, again, that we can address the effects of a COVID infection. One of those is giving antibodies. So we tend to think of our own immune system being responsible for producing the antibodies to fight an infection. But we can produce antibodies, human antibodies, in a lab and then give those to people as sort of bypassing that step of the immune response. And so that's what this this subset is. And it, it does look like President Trump is getting one, getting some of these antibodies, despite the fact that they're still under investigation. So that's an interesting feature of his treatment. He is also getting remdesivir, so that blocks viral replication. That is pretty standard of care at this point for somebody who's hospitalized. And then the dexamethasone, the steroid, Matt, just as you were saying, often we use that in more severe cases, and it does seem to show a higher effect size. As you kind of look back at both of the, the studies on remdesivir and on dexamethasone, remdesivir seems to have somewhat of a higher effect size on earlier cases, and whereas dexamethasone I think of as more for more severe cases. And that's because it affects that immune cascade and that inflammatory cascade that often happens after the viral load has gone way up. And so it's kind of a later effect that it helps to blunt. 
you know, I think everybody's sort of trying to read and say, you know, since there's been some of the mixed messaging, everybody wants to know, well, how sick is he? You know, what's yeah. going on? And can we use these, the therapies that he's getting to kind of back calculate and see what's going on? And I think it's tough, you know, it's tough to not be, if, if you're not, or I as a physician would, you know, reserve kind of commenting on that uh, because I just don't know the data. You know, I don't know exactly what the labs and the vital signs and things like that are. And so, you know, I think that that kind of speculation is tough and it's hard to know what sorts of, you know, clinical things went into that decision making. So I would reserve, you know, a sense of judgment about what's going on or trying to speculate about the severity of the case. But it does seem like for the most part, with the exception of these antibodies, he's getting pretty standard of care treatment, things that we use in our hospital all the time. And, you know, I think there's, it'll be interesting to see. I'm hopeful that, that these monoclonal antibodies will provide some therapeutic benefit too. Mm-hmm. We just don't have that data finalized yet. Okay. I'm curious on when you were talking about the, the steroid, is it common? Cause you mentioned usually it's, it's given right when it, when it's kind of a higher threshold, is it less advantageous medically to give it so early or is it? Uh... No, I mean, I think there's, I would say that it's, there are side effects to steroids. There's a certain subgroup of patients who never need them at all, but in general, it's a relatively low risk medication and it's pretty widely available. And so I don't think that, you know, I'll often use it in, in a patient who needs any supplemental oxygen in the hospital, particularly if they have other risk factors for severe disease. And different hospitals will have different sort of guidelines for yeah. use about, you know, clinical pathways about when you might introduce dexamethasone in the treatment course. So I don't think that it's, you know, it, it, seemed, it makes sense that he might be getting okay. it at this point. I don't, also don't think that necessarily, you know, I don't think it necessarily tells us how sick he is, the fact that he's getting it. Sure. Uh, it's just hard to know. Yeah. You know, I think it may be out of an abundance of, of caution and with relatively low side effects, they said, let's just yeah. go ahead and give it. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is it. Hey, if you're the president of the United States, of course, you're going to have a lot of, a lot of speculation, a lot of, a lot of people chiming in. On what's going on. That's right. It seems like the, yeah, everybody's, everybody's kind of like transfixed over the reports of vital signs. And, you know, it's just, it's just, it's a, it's a whole another level of, it's just a whole another level. It's, it's, yeah, it is. It's, that was totally random, but I saw that Twitter's like going up like crazy because President Trump is in the hospital with COVID. And I, I mean, I don't get it. I mean, he's just accessible either in the White House or at the hospital. I mean, it looks like a nice presidential suite. So it's not like they don't have cameras there if they don't need to. But apparently people are just like waiting for the tweets more than anything from President Trump. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating just yeah. circus. I think ride. anything that gives a sense of certainty in this uncertain time is probably, you know, people want to hang on to that. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to what we wanted to talk about, one of their big deep dives. This is Something that's been on our radar for, I think, uh, three to four weeks now. We've been talking about this this super spreading event. And just a couple of days ago, saw a couple of articles. And I, I really want Stephen to come in and bring clarity to this. I'm a little confused, but maybe not entirely. So this is the largest study that's come out, I think out of India. You can, you can correct all of my errors when I'm done talking, Stephen. But I think out of India, largest study on super spreading and this is what I love. Back in the day, guys, back in the March, I think we started off, by wait, it's like seven-month anniversary, I think, of us. It's around this time, March 3rd. And I was thinking about this, like the March 3rd episode. I think we we're saying, man, you know, we could be getting close to 100 cases, you know, at some point in time. And I'm like, whoa, a different world. Totally different world. 
<laughs> so yeah. I think there's like 16, and we were we were really early on. Uh, wow. when we, when we yeah, first... I remember that. I remember because we were counting them in the single digits for yeah. a while. Uh-huh. And, you know, the first couple we were just seeing and trying to wrap our heads around what exponential growth might yeah. uh-huh. mean and look like. You know, and here we are. And I still have no clue about exponential growth. And here we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so some things I've learned, some things I haven't, at least experientially. It's tough to, to, so back in the day, so talk about the super spreading. And we're, oh yeah. The one thing I wanted to mention is this, the Pareto pr- principle. I talked about this a couple of times. I love this principle, this really guiding force that really 20% of your efforts, your work usually is, is, is kind of the part of your 80% of your consequences and your reward. And that this is a, we, we mentioned this in the context of so many layers of our episodes, whether it was cleaning food or that kind of, or whatever things you can do really to, to double down that 20%. And now we see it rise. It's, it's, whether ugly or pretty little head and maybe in an ugly way of seeing in this article that roughly 19% contribute uh, of these of infections of COVID contribute to over 80% of the transmission. So now we're seeing mm, a little bit more of a nuanced perspective of COVID, not necessarily like the flu, which is kind of more widespread, generic, seeing this concentrated reality of, I, you know, I think maybe, maybe Stephen, you mentioned at one point in time, but there's this one woman who's like this poster child of it who infected 6,000 or 5,000 individuals. I don't know if that's true of this folklore. Read it. I read it. I read it online. It's true, right? I read it yep. online. <laughs> so, so can you speak into this, this K factor that's going on? People are saying that R naught is no longer that effective, that it's the K factor we need to look at, that, uh, and even things about Sweden and how in that they did have a stricter policy in some areas kind of regarding these kind of super spreading realities. So, Bring us up to speed of what's going on and how this maybe nuances our perspective. Yeah, so it's, first of all, it's super exciting that from from just like a mathematical epidemiologist nerd perspective that there's these these numbers and these uh, sort of ways of measuring epidemic spread are becoming more of like the, the cultural, more like the cultural attention. It's like, cool. I mean, I think about these things all the time. Yeah. So essentially what it's referring to is that when the... the the most fundamental number that we think about in terms of disease spread is, is the reproduction number, R not or R, if you just want to drop the zero. And that's, as, as we've spoken about many times before, is the number of people that an infectious person is expected to infect if they were just dropped down in a population that didn't have any disease in it. So that's important and, and remains to be important. So I, I would say in response to one of the things you mentioned, you know, the, the reproduction number continues to be important because that is the number that that affects whether the whether infections are increasing or decreasing period Mm -hmm. if if, if r is greater than one infections are increasing and if it's less than one they're decreasing we try to keep it below one that's 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 the goal but the question then is how do we do that so of course the not everybody's going to infect the same number of people there's um a distribution around that so even if the reproduction number for COVID is um, on the order of three, so a given infectious person is expected to infect maybe three others under standard assumptions, assuming no interventions, whatever, not everybody is going to infect three people. There are a lot of people who aren't going to infect anyone. And there might be a handful of people who infect 20 others. And so you can think about this. There, there's a whole range of distributions you can think about. And the simplest one is where everybody just infects three. And for that, the, the, the K number, this dispersion number, if I'm thinking about it all correctly, but it's, it would be zero. So for those of you who are mathy out there, basically the K number is the variance, or the, I guess in this case, the standard deviation of that distribution of the secondary infections. So what that tells us then is 
as that K increases, then you're going to have sort of this bigger spread where maybe on average, a person's going to infect three other people, but then, then you're going to get into this realm of the 80-20 rule where a lot of people are going to infect no one, but a few people are going to infect a ton of others. And that changes the way that we need to think about disease spread. Because again, the, the fundamental idea is to reduce R, to reduce the reproduction number. But if you go back to your statistics courses, you remember that the mean of a distribution, basically the mean of a set of numbers, is really heavily affected by numbers that are out in the tail, by really, really sort of rare events. So the mean of a distribution is going to get pulled a lot higher if you have a couple of people who are infecting a lot of others. So, so these super spreaders or super spreading events are basically taking that reproduction number and increasing it a lot. And so if we think about how we can prevent infections, well, either we can sort of shut everything down and make sure that nobody can transmit disease, which is a, a blunt force object for sure. That's the, the idea behind lockdowns. And it works, you know, it works, but, the, but they're very disruptive as well. But another strategy is that if you can just sort of chop off that tail, meaning if you can prevent the people and if you can prevent the events where lots of people get infected, then the average of that distribution decreases a lot. And you might even be able to get it down below one by just sort of mm. focusing in a targeted way on those on those really high spreading events, the super spreading events. So that's the idea behind this. And that's that's why it's so important, because speaking now biologically and epidemiologically, the severe coronaviruses that we know of, so SARS, MERS, and now SARS-CoV-2, all of them seem to display a lot of this sort of super spready behavior, much more so than things like flu, for example. And we're not entirely sure why. It could just have to do with the behavior, like interactions between behavior and demographics of people who normally get infected and when in the course of infection you're infectious. But there might also be something physiological where there might be a very wide range of just how much virus a person produces when they're infected. Um, and that could potentially lead to this, these really huge amounts of variation in how many other people a person goes on to infect. And so so that seems to be a, a kind of a quintessential feature of, of these severe coronaviruses. And, and seems to be, all of the evidence seems to be pointing that direction for SARS-CoV-2, as I mentioned as well. So that raises the possibility of different types of interventions that are that are more targeted at, at preventing these uh, these super spreading events. And I've been advocating for this since April, really, when when this idea sort of first came about. Because knowing what we knew about SARS, I, I we sort of anticipated that that would probably be the case with SARS-CoV-2 as well. So that's one of the reasons why I've been trying to make sure that I don't interact with more than five unique people in any span of 14 days, because that limits the number of people who I could possibly infect to, to five, right? So that, that makes it impossible for me to be a super spreader. And, yeah. and so if, like, if we could do that, then, then that, that goes a long way in controlling infection. So that's the idea behind this. And I think helps to explain maybe to some extent why we've seen so much variation between different places and the severity of infections. Because one other thing that this really wide range of variance in the number of people a person infects does is it introduces a lot of randomness and almost like chaos into the system, where if if you have a couple of these super spreading events, you can really ignite a large epidemic. But most of the time, the epidemics will sort of bubble along and then fail. So it, it creates this sort of boom-bust economy of, of epidemics as well on the population scale, which is really interesting. And I think maybe helps us come to terms with why you know certain places were really infected, had really big epidemics early on, and others that were really similar in a lot of demographic characteristics just seemed to be spared for a time and then didn't get their epidemics until later. I think all of this sort of is consistent with this idea that super spreading is really important. 
That's great. So, okay, I want to go in a little bit more about the super spreaders because I've been reading a few articles about this and they'll talk about these super spreaders, but then they don't talk about the person. They talk about, well, so to help the super spreaders stay away from indoors, not a lot of people, which is kind of the thing we've been doing. We've kind of nailed down our, like, I think in some sense we've, we've nailed our public health initiative. It's like, wear a mask, stay outdoors, wash your hands, don't be in large groups, and social distance, those five things, right? That's kind of our public health message. And then in the super spreaders, I don't hear much about the person, but I hear about the, the circumstances by which super spreading events happen. Now, I'm probably it's probably the chicken or the egg thing. It's probably a combination of both. But is, is, is a super spreader particularly tied to, to the spreader and their, or is it more tied to the environment? Is there, is there a particular relationship because I just don't see anybody talking about the actual spreader, but just the circumstances. Why is that? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things in play here. I think the the first thing to say is that we we just don't know. This is sort of one of the big mysteries and things that I think is a really interesting area of, of research in epidemiology. We don't really know if if there are certain aspects about individuals, about their behaviors, about their social roles that contribute to more or less spread. Now, now you can imagine that there are some things that are, that are obvious where if you know, if if there's i don't know a, a bank teller working a desk or something where they come into contact with 500 people a day they're more likely to be a super spreader than me who doesn't see anybody sure. uh, you know? yeah, and yeah. so like there there are certain constraints there and again maybe there are biological constraints and and it, it may vary by disease as well so 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 there are a couple of things in place so first i think it's 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 helpful to think about a super spreading event or or a scenario where super spreading can occur because it really reinforces the fact that any of us can be a super spreader if we're sort of the wrong person at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and I think that, that part, of that is, part of that is just because that's true. Part of it just comes from you know, a long uh, period of, you know, there's, this is sort of a separate issue, but in public health, there's, there's often this sort of the knee-jerk tendency is, is to blame the person for the spread of the disease. There's a lot of, there, it's very easy to sort of work in an economy yeah. of blame and of guilt and of shame and these kinds of things. And I think that one of the things we're trying to do with this also is to remove that, sort of preempt that. Mm-hmm. So it's something that's also not not entirely sort of mathematical or epidemiological, but actually sociological here that's going on as well. But nevertheless, I do think it's also consistent with the reality yeah, so I think that's important. And and the last thing I want to mention too, though, is so as mathematical modelers, oftentimes what we're what we do is we we build these very idealized systems where you have these agents on your computer who are interacting with each other totally randomly, and you can simulate the spread of an infection. And actually, if if you do that under pretty standard, pretty simple you know, constraints, you actually end up with a distribution of secondary infections. That just sort of falls out of the problem. So some of it is just sort of inherent to the way that diseases spread, that some people will just by chance run into more people than others, and some people will do that when they happen to be more infectious. And so there doesn't have to be anything inherent about a person or even a scenario to get this sort of distribution that you frequently see. Now, behavior and uh, biology can contribute to that for sure, but the, the distribution already exists even in sort of the most simple scenario that you can imagine. So, so that's part of it as well. That's great. And this goes back to last week with you and I about, I think, the Boulder thing. I think this seems to confirm this reality of the super spreading event and the public health initiative is pretty locked down. It seems to be a really good one, really effective. And so going to the lockdown, 
Do you think now, in light of what we know, in light of the super spreading event, is a lockdown our, one of our greatest assets still? Or are there other things that are better now in light of weighing what the benefits and the collateral damage is and how we choose this concoction of how we best address COVID in a way that squelches it and keeps us going? Yeah, I think, well, first, I think it's worth just bearing, worth us like bearing in mind that, that lockdowns come in a lot of different flavors. So earlier this year, we were we were facing a national and an almost global lockdown, which is pretty, that, that was a very big deal. And and the reason why that was necessary was because we, we didn't know about the, the key modes of transmission for SARS-CoV-2. We didn't have the tests to know where it was or how bad it was really anywhere. Um, and so we were sort of forced to do this really, really blunt force response that, that was this sort of widespread lockdown. Now, I do still think that now, now it almost gets into the, the question of what, what exactly do you call a lockdown? Now, if you're beginning to see an outbreak spreading, I can see local lockdowns of a certain variety being valuable. But now the thing that we're benefiting from is that we, we have the testing to know where the cases are much, much better than we did before. And, and we have a better sense of, of what contributes to spread. So I think the lockdowns can be lighter, they can be shorter, they can be more local. And sometimes they won't be necessary at all, because we will be able to, again, try to avoid these super spreading events, trying to avoid parties and um, large <laughs> gatherings without masks and things like that. And and that, that alone might be enough to curb transmission. If it's not, then then I think lockdowns, again, maybe on a local, maybe on a, on a temporary scale may still be necessary. Because again, the it's, it's almost like a, if anyone has like studied like the physics of nuclear reactors, there's something kind of similar here too, where, where you can sort of reach this point of criticality in the population where you have enough of these super spreading events that it's, that transmission can sort of become sustained, that the probability of another super spreading event happening is just really high because there's so much transmission happening. Sure. And once you reach that point, then I think a lockdown makes a lot of sense because you just need to put out the fire and put it out quickly. But until we get to that point, uh, then I think that there are a lot of other things that we can do that are a lot more agile, I guess. That's great. Yeah, I, I think you said it well. I think there, now I think there's like this higher threshold by which we, uh, for a more comprehensive lockdown to actually occur. I think you'd said it perfectly in March. You said this early, both you and Mark, in March and April. Yes, the reason why there was a lockdown back then was, A, to help not overwhelm the hospitals, but you guys said all along, and B... We don't even have the infrastructure in place to be able to deal with this yet. And so until we get a solution, until we get a plan, we've got to do something to, to, to keep it from being like wildfire. Now, thank, you know, thankfully, we have a better plan. We have some good, good five-step process, and this can help curb us from having another severe lockdown. And just want to touch on Sweden as well. We talked about Sweden last week as well. This article brought back Sweden again and just said, look, you're right. It didn't do a lockdown, but if you compare it through the lens of uh, super spreading events, they are actually a little stricter than more most places when it comes to those kind of localizations. No more than fifty people in a, in, a, in a setting. I know they had like different sets of institutions were online. Some could go to class. They were kind of like you know, like you said, there's no on a lockdown. There's a huge scale. We look at Sweden as being open, did whatever they did, they wanted to, but they did have their strict policies that seemed to kind of correlate to more of a super spreading preventative measure, which could account for while they did, they do have the largest death rate, you know, in their area on another scale, they show signs of a little bit of success as well. Yeah. Mark, do you have anything to add to this? 
No, I think that's, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, just reflecting back a couple of things, I think the the idea of the K is really interesting in terms of figuring out how how sharp of a peak we've got essentially. So, how much is there variability in the de, in the degree to which uh, we expect the transmission to happen? That's an interesting concept that's new to me, and and it makes a lot of sense. How if there's a lot of variability, then working on these really high value scenarios is going to give us a lot of downstream value. You know, it's funny being living in a in a family of five to think about limiting our contacts as a group, you know, as severely as you have been able to Stephen is is pretty unfathomable. You know, also with like have cl- you know, clinical facing jobs and you know, so I'll see probably, you know, 50 people easily per day at work and different people and patients and walk through the ER and all of that's with you know, with a mask on and, you know, observing strict hand hygiene and things like that. But it's a very different scenario, I think, you know, in terms of like figuring out what is what does it mean for me or for a family or for folks who are working in, you know, interfacing with the public in a different way that, you know, I think it's it's different to sort of think about how do you prevent being in these super spreader scenarios when kind of daily life brings you into contact with that many people. So that's one thing I'm reflecting on. I don't don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, that's a really, really good point. And there's, there are a lot of people for whom sort of changing their behavior in a way to prevent being in a scenario where a super spreading event can happen just, just isn't possible with. So one of, one of the demographics actually that is, that has been most affected by COVID so far, as far as I know, are, are uh, public transportation workers. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's there's been a huge rate of infection among um, especially bus drivers in big cities. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that the 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 idea is 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 trying to find principles now. So on a on like a city planning scale, you know how how do we keep people who are in these scenarios safe? Is there any way to protect them to build sort of, you know, any barrier around the, where the driver sits, anything like that to, to just sort of reduce the probability of them coming into contact with large numbers of other people. And then for people like me who have the luxury and privilege of not having to interact with many people, um, recognizing that because I have that capability that I also, to some extent, I, I, I sort of taken the responsibility on myself too to make sure that I'm not <laughs> sort of using, using my leisure time to continue spreading disease more than I need to. Or more than I could, and I and I think that again, a lot of these are like personal decisions, and I I'm definitely not necessarily advocating for any one particular thing, other than just being responsible in whatever way that responsible means to you. And I think that just the principles that we're talking about here about the the chance that that there can be this really wide variation in the number of people who a single person can infect is just important to bear in mind. And then as we sort of integrate that into how we live our lives, I think that that's the most important thing we can do. Hey, it goes back to the Pareto principle, right? It's like, hey, it's it's our it's our adver- adversary with COVID, and it's our and, and it's our advocate. Where, I mean, what's that twenty percent that we can help a little bit in our own lives, just shed a little bit uh, to reduce right. the amount of exposure, right? For you, you have the luxury to be able to do it. Mark, you do not have it. I'm I'm in between you two. Like uh, where my kids are all at home in homeschool. If you're hearing banging, they're literally banging on the window in my basement, trying to get my attention, and I'm not looking at them and putting my hand like, stop, please stop. <laughs> So they're out there in their backyard and I go to, I go to work, but it's, it's well-contained. And so we do our best. 20% helps, helps go a long way. 
The one thing I wanted to bring into this as well in this conversation, Bruce from Australia wrote us. I sent you that email. Sorry, like two hours ago, came probably last week. So uh, he talked about he wanted to give a touch base with what, what Australia is doing, how it's going, and it relates to this conversation. And I would love your feedback, both of you, on this. I didn't know this. So Australia is doing quite well. I mean, eighteen thousand tests. I mean, point zero six percent of a of a positive case rate. 10 cases and about 5 million. I mean, that's like a dream for us. And they're still on a lockdown. I, I, I had to follow up with him. I go, are you serious? Like, are you on a complete lockdown? I'm not sure what you mean by that. And, you know, he's really concerned about, he kind of gave this quote. I, I love this. He's like, uh, I saw an interesting quote yesterday. Is life priceless or precious, right? Priceless meaning when the government is paying or is it precious? And I know this can be a false dichotomy. Things can be much bigger. This is complicated. But I'm just surprised. Now, hey, good news. The flu is pretty much non-existent there in the past 30 years. But in that situation, I don't know if you guys know about Australia. I don't know about the details. Like at this point in time, I think a lockdown would be not even even worth doing. Or am I like not seeing the connection here? Yeah, what do you think, Steve? Do you yeah. know much about what's going on there right now? I, I haven't been following too closely. So I think the, the lockdowns there are, as far as I can tell, are... I could be wrong, but I, I think they've been on the order of cities, which is still really big. If though they haven't, I don't think been national for a while, but yeah, it's, they've, they have taken a very different approach than the U S has for sure. And they've imposed lockdowns on cities when, when there were comparatively handfuls of cases compared to what we were seeing here, you know, every yeah. day. And it's, yeah, it's a very different approach. It's hard to speak into it because I, I think that, you know, we've, there's, there's been such a diversity of, of responses that, and again, it's frequently our, our response does not perfectly correlate to what ends up actually happening. So, sure. but nevertheless, it's, yeah, I think there's all of these things have trade-offs that I, that, that I don't know how to, how to measure and how to weigh, which is, I think the, ultimately the, the role that the, that the politicians ideally are serving. And mm-hmm. so so certainly, I mean, if, if our only goal is, well, I was going to say if our only goal is public health, but if our only goal is preventing the spread of COVID, then widespread lockdowns do make sense when mm-hmm. there are only 20 cases around. But I think that's the question is we need to be very clear about just like, what, what are our goals and what are we willing to, to, to invest in them? And that's, those, those are much bigger questions that I don't, yeah. I don't exactly know how to answer. Yeah. No, sorry to put you on the spot, but yeah, I was, I was just really shocked when I heard that. Cause like, Oh, we got our, yeah. I feel like the whole five things that we've been talking about in the U S and I'm sure globally, it's probably all over the place of just this distancing and seems to be the, a great working process. By the way, guys, before we continue, I just want to press this button. I was going to see if this works. Hey, look at that. Do you guys see it on the screen? Sorry, I don't know if they can see. Oh, but, uh, hey, yep. All right, so I didn't know that. I just want to test something, Paige. Thanks for giving us some applause. That was awesome. <laughs> I can post. I can post comments or questions on here as well. I just want to test it out for those who are on the podcast. It means nothing to you, but this was my one chance to press a button and see what it did, and that's what it did. Okay, that's awesome. Okay, well, the last thing I want to chat about briefly is it's on people's minds, and that is the vaccine. We've been drilling this over and over and over again. I like this article, and I want to propose it to both of you because I'm having the same question. I would imagine a vaccine could be available relatively soon, which means I'm going to have to make a decision for me and my family, whether we're going to do this round, the next round. And how do we, how do we begin to process this? Because there are a lot of people in the mix talking about advocating the vaccine. There's a lot of people against the vaccine. I just want to know who do I trust? Where do I look? What do I look to, to know that I'm getting the most objective, relevant information and not an agenda. And I know that's hard. Everything's ripe with story, but where can I start 
to look or glance towards, right? Any ideas? This is tough. I feel like this is this th- we've seen this coming in some ways that this is the singularity between there's, you know, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy prior to COVID to begin with, sure. and then there's sort of a COVID, you know, suspicion as well. And as we've talked about again and again, there's so much nuance in interpreting just the raw scientific data and the ways that scientific data can be strung together to produce what appears to be a compelling narrative that may not actually correspond to what's actually going on versus kind of a really rigorous understanding of what the data is and what the limitations of of that data. And so all that to say, I think, I think this is going to be, I'm, it, it'll be tough. I'm interested to see what's going to happen, but I do, I do worry that once there's a vaccine, it'll be kind of spark a whole new level of suspicion and concern, re, you know, regarding the efficacy, the safety, you know, the intentions of the people who are putting the vaccine forward and things like that. And so I agree with you that, you know, figuring out kind of where you're looking for some of this uh, good, rigorous and balanced information is going to be super, super important. A lot of the same things probably apply uh, to the vaccine scenario as have applied to the rest of the pandemic. And, you know, in terms of looking for individuals who are able to help to parse some of that scientific data or looking at it yourself. And especially if you have some training in that and evaluating the evidence and getting a sense of things, getting multiple different opinions, I think can be helpful. And then also working with individuals in community and in conversation to kind of take all that information and turn it into something that's more understandable and can guide our actions. I don't know, Stephen, if you have any ideas or if you have any specific sources. I think it's we're in a, we're in a very difficult time where things, you know, bodies that I would traditionally recommend, yeah, I still recommend. Like I think the CDC is a good place to look for information about this thing, these sorts of things. But there's been so much suspicion about the CDC, for instance, or about the World Health Organization, or about these other bodies that are supposed to be our guiding, you know, guiding institutions that that while I think that they still maintain that integrity and they're a good place to take to to look and get that information from there are a lot of people who would not you know who who have disagreed with that as we've encountered and so trying to kind of bridge that gap I think is something that's going to be important and would do us well to start thinking about now before a vaccine is here Stephen yeah I I, I agree I, I don't have much to add there I I was I was going to really go for a, a similar a similar approach that I think the best thing we can do here is is synthesize various bits of information that's out there to the extent that we're able and and again as Mark said having having trust in the organizations that are there for precisely this purpose and and also recognize that there's we also you know have a responsibility to form our beliefs from a you know from a, a variety of sources and and I, I think really mark what you said was was exactly it ideally doing it in community and in conversation and dialogue that is uh charitable and open and and presumes the goodwill of the other because yeah it's it's just uh, a tumultuous time there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of confusion i similarly still have uh, a great deal of trust in the organizations that will be making the approvals of vaccines but I think that there's, it's, yeah, it's worth, it's worth just sort of taking in the information in, a, in its totality to the extent that we're able and yeah, doing our best to just understand it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know, Matt, do okay. you have any, do you have any thoughts? Cause you know, I think both, both Stephen and I kind of engage in this in some ways in a different way, because we have these professional contacts who are, yeah, sure. you know, involved. How, how do you, how are you, you know, now 
where we're at, you know, seven, eight months in, what are you looking to and how do you, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm more on the side of like, Hey, I'll take it. That's just who I am personally. I'm, I'm an early adopter about everything. It might kill me someday, mm-hmm. but like whether it's a beta product and software or whatever, like, I'll, I'll do it. I'll try it. I'll try it. It's fun. Right. <laughs> I just want to see how it works. So I have a tendency, but I have a family now. And uh, so I have to kind of, there's more voices in, in the mix to, to discuss this and to figure out what's our best uh, choice. It, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're all on board that to, we want to do it and uh, want to do it safely. You know, when I hear these news things about how typically a vaccine takes so much longer, and so there's like a certain point by which they release the information on data, and it's that's how they do it. But now everything's so rushed that the data is not being quite released yet because it, we haven't caught up with the new procedures with actually expedite lightning speed processes. So there's a lot of people who are like, quote, independent scientists, which which I do have a follow-up question. Like, who are these people? You think you have professionals who you look to, but I don't even know what the names are. Like, I, until March, I didn't know you, you went to an epidemiologist, I didn't even know how to pronounce on our first episode, of infectious disease to deal with this stuff. I had no clue. It was my first introduction to that. That's who you go to, right? Who do you go to? What's the title mm-hmm. of a person or a genre that has this as their expertise of understanding the ins and outs of a vaccine? It's, it's probably not a veterinarian. It's someone else. I don't know who it is. So I, I, let's start there. Is there, is there a specialty in this area of scientists? Well, yeah. I mean, immunologists are often people who can Once. comment. But I think yeah. also, you know, we've seen, um, unfortunately, we've seen folks use credentials and in ways that are sometimes misleading as well. And so you'll have, you know, especially I'm particularly sensitive to this because it's, you know, my, (laughs) my guild, right. But it's when somebody says, well, I'm a doctor and X, Y, Z, you know, and it's, well, that's, that's true, but there's, we, you know, there are other things that we have to appeal to and other, other levels of rigor and levels of Kind of, and so it's not enough to just look for the title either. Sure. So, but but I would say a good place to start would be looking at for you know folks who are working in immunology or vaccine research. Yeah. I think epidemiologists are still really the people to look towards right. in this scenario because they're helping us to weigh, you know, weigh some of these risks and benefits and look at the population level uh, yeah. concerns. Yeah. Well, great. I mean, that helps. I mean, you're absolutely right. I'm not going to look just to a title. I want to, I want to, but that's my low hanging fruit. I want to start. I want something to buy down on and then expand my horizons, like the opposite of an onion. I want to start in the very center and then I kind of peel my way back together. So, so, so however I do that in a community is totally part of that. But at the same time, a little alarm bells go on when you say community, because how many of us have homogenous communities that just are confirmation bias, what we want to hear. And it just, it just, it, we just go off the direction down a slippery slope and off a precipice and just do something bad where, you know, it goes back to Abraham when he was back on months ago in, in early mm-hmm. April, where he talked about, you got to have community. And it needs to be diverse. You got, you really need to diversify just like your income. You got to diversify your friendships, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. To have a polyphony of voices that can come in that you trust that can weigh in and then use this. And I'm afraid that we don't all have that. And if you guys have that, you're listening to it. You guys rock, right? But I don't, I don't think I have that as much as I thought I did. And a lot of things have revealed to me. So that's just my little toot. I'm horning or horning. I'm tooting, whatever it is. <laughs> so I said it completely like backwards We're doing okay. and I am <laughs> not going to edit that out. That is staying in. Uh, that's that good. That sounds good. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. 
Thanks. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, we'll end there. The great conversation, Mark, Stephen. It's always good to have you both on. I feel like I'm part of your family. But again, I know we're not blood brothers, but for you two, which I kind of like this. I was, I was going to say a phrase that is totally not politically correct. So thankfully, <laughs> I didn't say that. So I'm not, I'm, a, I'm, not a, I'm not a blood brother, but someday we're going to have that ceremony, like I'd mentioned about a few months ago, and I'll be, I'll be a blood brother as well back in the, <laughs> the 80s. Joking, guys. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. If you want to get a hold of Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R. By the way, every time I do that, I, I keep sing, singing this, the Mickey Mouse song. Every time I do that. I don't know why. <laughs> because, but it just, it's like someday, it, it, so sometimes I feel like I'm going to actually spell your last name Mouse by accident, just because it's like in my head. <laughs> S-T-E-P-H-E-N-M-O-U-S-E. I, I look forward to that. Stephen Mouse. <laughs> okay, so S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R. Me. Matt at livingthereal.com. Check it out. Just get ready to do another episode. I'm going to have Mark in again soon. It's going to be fun. We're going to do something on Living the Real. So, and then if you can, $225 more left to pay for all the awesome equipment, that kind of stuff, you can do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast or just a one-time gift in the PayPal or Venmo all in the show notes. You got it there. Have a wonderful week. We will see you next Monday. Take care. Bye-bye.